I'm Jill Shaw, and I'm here with Ross Wilson to talk about what happened last night at Boston's school committee meeting. The school committee meeting started at 5 in the evening and ran past 1 o'clock in the morning with school committee members discussing their review of the superintendent's first year through yawns of exhaustion somewhere after midnight. Good morning, Ross. Good morning, Jill. How are you? I'm well. That was a long one. Yeah, about an eight-hour meeting last night. Um, and uh, as you know, September 10th is the first day of school scheduled for students in Boston Public Schools. Right. And we had many people tune in to, to hear a plan. Um, and many may have left the meeting with more questions than answers. There yeah. was also you know, a bit of a tenor in the meeting from some of the school committee members about, you know, let's move through this quickly. There was 96 people who signed up for public comments, which made it over a three-hour public comment last night. Um, and, you know, while some members of the school committee were sort of pushing for let's let's move faster and let's have less discussion, um, there was this agenda item on the school committee meeting, which was a vote on the fields next to the McCormick School. and right. Which has been going on for a long time, right? Because I remember driving by there one day and you told me about the whole this has been this has been a whole discussion for years, I think, right? Yeah, it's it's just odd, Jill. You know, this is going on for over a few over uh, two years. This discussion, and and you really have to question um, why did we need to talk about this again last night during a, a school committee meeting that was scheduled as a special school committee meeting to talk about reopening? Um, right. let, let's play a quote, Jill, from from a community member, uh, Travis Marshall, um, who asked the, this question: Why why do this now? Why has BPS and this body devoted such a large amount of time to planning and considering this project when the number one issue facing BPS students is their ability to learn in a safe environment for the coming school year? What gain is there for the students at the Dever and McCormick schools to see their outdoor space taken away, especially in a pandemic where fresh air and open space have enormous value to their health? Why now? when all of our focus and energy should be devoted to finding creative solutions for safe learning environments. So, so Jill, I agree with Travis here. You know, I'm not sure why uh, we needed to, to fit in this long conversation about the McCormick Field. Um, and quite, quite honestly, there was a lot of uh, discontents around that decision um, that was made last night. In fact, there was a, a vote that was uh, three to two in favor of uh, a land lease uh, with two members um, abstaining from the vote, um, which is quite a contentious vote in the history of the Boston School Committee. You typically don't see those votes. Um, yeah. Irregardless, Jill, we, we, we have a very special or very important conversation to be having around reopening of school, which we'll dig into. Um, and as you noted, we also heard a brief review of the superintendent evaluation after midnight. Um, so overall, a really interesting meeting. It was an interesting meeting and it was, you know, there were themes that kind of ran through the meeting from the superintendent's comments through public comment and then all the way to the evaluation of the superintendent at, at the end of the evening. The first of these was a discussion about the decision to open, partially open, go entirely virtual at the beginning of the school year. Um, the district is using the term hopscotch, right? So to hopscotch or to not hopscotch, I guess, is the question right now. Um, let's play the tape of Tammy Post, who is the special advisor to the superintendent on the topic of reopening. So there has been no final decision made by the Boston Public Schools as to whether we will open remotely or in a hybrid model on the first day of school. That decision has not been made because that decision is made by science. 
and we are waiting and watching what the science is telling us. And frankly, um, we may not know that by the time that we file this plan with DESE on August 10th, because that is already a month away from the beginning of school. And we will simply be watching to make sure with the advice from the um, Boston Public Health Commission um, to, to make sure that we are staying within the guardrails of what's safe. If it's not safe, because the metrics say it's not safe, we won't be bringing anyone back into buildings. We also know that if we had made a decision in our first draft, or even if we make one on Friday, or if we make one two weeks from now, that decision will change if the science changes. So as the virus changes, as the community metrics change, our decisions will change with regard to whether or not we're opening fully remote or with some kids in buildings. We are not making that decision alone. We're not making it in a cubicle somewhere. We are making it directly in conversation now with the entire community and specifically with our union partners. Now, this comes up in public comment when Marta Bowsmer, who is a school nurse, asks this question. Um, I just want to know, um, what are the public health met metrics for safety that the district speaks of as needing to be met in order to go back in person safety? And what does the word safe mean to the district? Can they please provide um, your description of this incredibly important word that's being used across uh, the guidelines? And then again, in public comment, they're, uh, the lead author of a recent New England Journal of Medicine article uh, comments at school committee um, about the article and about her perspective on reopening school. I'm here briefly to um, discuss the reopening plan. Uh, I was lead author of a New England Journal of Medicine article that came out last week that actually advocated the potential of reopening uh, primary schools in areas with low levels of transmission, but I want to say that we um, did so on the conditions that there were safety conditions that were met, and that included regular testing because of precisely of the asymptomatic nature of um, students uh, who are infected. And it's really important to be able to keep students and teachers, uh, bus drivers, uh, etc., and their families uh, safe. We also were advocating the reopening of schools. Um, in order to enable uh, good pedagogy. And I do not believe that there's possible to do really good pedagogy that takes advantage of in-person learning if teachers are also required to uh, teach remotely simultaneously. And then once again, in public comment, um, city councilperson Michelle Wu adds to the discussion by with these comments. It doesn't help provide certainty to simply say that science will drive the decision. When there's no transparency about how infection data might drive decisions beyond deferring to the Boston Public Health Commission, when in all these months since the pandemic began, BPHC has issued no guidance or protocols for what happens in the inevitable situation that a student or school community member becomes exposed to the virus or what might trigger another shutdown. The draft plan also holds up health and well-being as a core value, but shifts the burden for carrying that out onto families. No virus testing provided or even required by the district no contact tracing, no water available for students during the day, trying to address the need to distance on school buses by cutting the number of families eligible for bus service, no plan to guarantee airflow and air quality in our older buildings. Um, finally, I'm grateful <coughs> for many educators, students, families, and school community members who I've had the opportunity to speak with in small group conversations and a larger town hall last week. They are brilliant. There are so many creative ideas put forward. And I want to note that I've yet to hear from one constituent, um, besides our lovely superintendent, who believes that the hopscotch model of simultaneous teaching is workable. 
So Jill, these, this is, this is really interesting. I mean, the, the, the school district um, led by Ms. Proust and, and uh, Superintendent Caselius are saying, we'll, we will be led by science. Science will lead us. So therefore we can't make a decision and we may not make a decision until right before school starts. Um, and many of the community members are saying, what, how, how are you using science? What metrics are you using? Be transparent about how you're making these decisions. Um, the community is basically saying, tell us, you know, what are the, what are the data you're looking at? Um, how will you begin to analyze that data to determine if school will be remote or hybrid in some format? Um, and we got no answers last night. Mm-hmm. All we heard over and over again is we will be guided by science and science will make the decision. Yeah, as if science is some sort of God. But there, none, I mean, the, I feel like we have this discussion time and time again when we're doing these school committee meeting um, summaries. There's never any data. There's never any, it, it, you know, this metric or that metric. Here's where, here's where we're starting. Here's where we're going to end. Here's our goal. There's never any actual numbers. There, there's right. just, you know, there's, it's, it's all just very, it's all summary and very high level. Jill, you would um, you would expect numbers. You would expect that the school system may say, um, if we see an increase in in cases um, at this percentage um, in these neighborhoods, uh, yeah. we will not we will open remote. We will be remote. Um, right. In fact, we see these numbers every day. You know, every day we see reports of neighborhood by neighborhood how many more cases of coronavirus we have. Um, right. It would be really nice if the school system would say, here's the numbers that we would be concerned about with percentage increase, you know, we've 1%, 2%, 3%, whatever those numbers are. Um, and, and if we see a rise in cases to that percentage, we will be remote. Right. Yeah. I, I, I yeah, it's, it's just so important but, right and, now. And, I mean, people are so, so, so scared, right. And that we, they're, you know, it's talk of science, but the science is changing daily. And um, so it's really important for leaders um, of an institution as large and as um, important as Boston Public Schools to for people to feel like they can have faith in where it's going. Well, it, 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 it also, you know, it, the, the plan is remiss of any contact tracing, um, you know, so that doesn't really discuss how the system will track uh, very clearly cases or when a school would be shut down. Should it should it come back uh, in person? Um, and, and to your point, Jill, a large, larger degree. Um, there's a sense of distrust of the school department making making these decisions. Um, right. So in an absence of trust, uh, you have to prove to the community that you're making the decisions based on some very clearly defined criteria. And if you don't provide that defined criteria, the school community will not trust you. It's hard to capture the emotion of the meeting last night, but you talked about how 96 people lined up to speak during public comment. And it, it was... I mean, it was incredibly emotional, you know, teacher after teacher, parent after parent, doctor and nurse after doctor and nurse um, standing up to say, this isn't well thought through. And we are, an incre- we are incredibly nervous about this plan that you're putting forward. And please take a, take a pause and rethink this. Um, it, it, there was such little trust expressed yesterday during public comment. So moving on. The next topic was about how is this actually going to happen? So how, how realistic is this hopscotch plan in its application? And this topic was kicked off with a question from school committee member, Ms. Robinson. Anybody who's actually doing this or has done this anywhere in the country that's videotaped so we could see what it looks like because I'm having a very difficult time imagining it or, or putting myself 
in the shoes of that teacher. To which Superintendent Casilius provides this answer. So I think about if I were a third grade teacher, I would gather my children, the ones that I have in front of me, as well as the ones I have virtually, and I would host a morning meeting like I typically would, bringing them to the carpet. But you can't do that, obviously, with the six feet of distance, but you can virtually in the Zoom room and create the sense of community and connectedness that you do. And then I would move into um, a math lesson that maybe I taped over the weekend um, so that children could see the math lesson and they'd watch the video of me teaching. And then I might throw them into the Zoom uh, meeting rooms where they're in small groups or they're in a pair share and they're working one-on-one uh, -on -one, uh, with one another. And then I might come back as a large group in the Zoom again uh, with the whole entire class, both those virtually and in person. And then after that, I might take a break from the screen and we might uh, do a sing-along um, in, in person. And that might be a similar sing-along that they might just do at home with a parent or a sibling. And then I might take more of a break and have uh, lunch or a snack and then go outside and do play or an outdoor activity for recess and do some sort of movement and then come back as a whole group and reconvene after that again and then do another uh, directed lesson. If, if it's an inclusionary classroom, this might be a time when they get additional one-on-one -on -one services from a resource teacher or a different uh, teacher providing some additional one-on-one -on -one or a paraprofessional might work with them on one-on-one, -on -one, either in person or also on the Zoom, depending on how that's staffed and how they work that out at the school level. Um, and then I might um, take a few hours to work on a project um, and that could be either done in group project or a, a different project for kids. So, I mean, there are ways to, to do it and, um, and to, you know, and, and then you could also um, potentially have opportunities for place-based learning uh, where they can uh, go to the museum and do a scavenger hunt if, if it's open and some other uh, different types of activities. So it's really going to take the creativity of our teachers thinking about how to mix in independent practice, um, small group practice, guided practice, and then practice with uh, uh, other professionals and specialists like an art teacher, a PE teacher, and how they schedule those days. And that's why it's really important that teachers yeah. uh, get back in the classrooms and they um, mm. learn from one another what's working. And so th this is really challenged in public comment. Here's one of the public comments that kind of gets right to the heart of this matter. On July 24th, DESE finally recognized aerosol transmission in its guidance for courses requiring additional safety considerations and said chorus, singing, musical theater, and using brass and woodwind instruments are no longer permitted indoors. Meanwhile, on July 25th and 30th, Dr. Caselius suggested that the way to bring joy to reopen classrooms is to have a lot of singing, songs for washing hands, uh, lining up, etc. This illustrates more than a right hand, left hand disconnect. So, Jill, a lot of people are wondering how is um, how does it one teacher teach students who are in front of them in the classroom and teach students who are logging in remotely at home. Uh, because it's important to note that that the school system absolutely said they they will either be hybrid or remote, um, and that every student, every family, I'm sorry, could opt to be completely remote if they want to. Um, so, 
the school system is saying, um, we want teachers to teach students at home at the same time they're teaching students in the classroom. And as you heard the superintendent um, uh, give a description of what she thought that would look like. And, you know, there's a couple of points here that are, that are still um, hard for me to understand. Um, the superintendent talked about taping a lesson over the weekend, a math lesson that she would, that she would uh, then play if she was a teacher to open up a class for a mini lesson. I, I'm not clear, would all students in the class also be logging into their computer to watch this lesson as well as students at home? Yeah. She, she talked about um, having students go out for different breaks. Uh, and I wasn't clear if that was everybody both at home and um and in school, she talked about singing a song, which, as you heard from the public comments, um, is the, actually the guidance from from um, experts. Yeah, is that you shouldn't be singing. Um, but the superintendent talked about singing a song and then having parents sing along with their kids at home. Um, it, it's very difficult to think about that, especially if parents are working. Um, it, she talked about students going to a museum potentially to do a scavenger hunt during right. the day. Um, that's right. hard for me to understand if parents are working all day, how students are going to get to a museum at yeah. home. And are the students in school also going to that museum? Um, the Then she talked about two hours of maybe project time at the end of the day, which I wasn't sure, again, what students would be doing at home and in school. And quite frankly, Jill, it's very hard to think about how teachers in kindergarten through 12th grade will be teaching students at home and school at the same exact time. And quite frankly, and respectfully, the example from the superintendent was not even close to enough um, for any parent or teacher to say, I now have a visual of how to do this. It, so, it just It's so hard to believe that she's had many conversations with actual teachers and actual principals who have to be at this point thinking about the granularities of what happens when a child walks into the school, what happens when a child is home for the day, how do I do something parallel and provide a day of education for both of them? I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure that across the district, district teachers and principals are thinking deeply about these things, but somehow the superintendent wasn't able to illustrate, um, you know, an actual, what an actual day would look like for a child of any grade. Um, and then, and then the question of operational execution just gets pushed even further um, by Michael O'Neill, who is a school committee member. And so he, um, this is, let's play this conversation that he has with Tammy Poost and with the superintendent about how, you know, how, how are we getting prepared for this plan? So when you say you've set up sample classrooms, how many have you set up? Uh... I don't know that answer. I know I saw six or eight about a month ago. I'm not sure how many of those are still there. I know there were pictures taken to send to the school leaders. That is part of the package they will get with the template that is related to the, doc the, the plan that was just released. So how many classrooms do we have in the district? I actually know that it is not 5,000. I'm trying to see if I can find in my head what the number is. I do have in an email somewhere a number. We'll get that, we'll get that for you. I, someone may text it to me in, in a few minutes, but um, okay. we'll make sure we can get that for you. Because when I think of those classrooms, I also think of if we're doing this hybrid teaching, you know, are we going to order, say we have 5,000 classrooms for the sake of argument. Have we ordered 5,000 cameras? Have we ordered 5,000 setups for 
each of those classrooms. So we have 4,500 teachers about, and we have um, about four, four or 5,000 cameras from a vendor ready to send them to us. If, um, yeah. And we have in like until Tuesday to make the decision to, before he needs to ship them to someone else. So it's kind of like when this past spring, we had 20,000 computers that yeah. we could get from the supplier. And he said, you got to order them right now if you want them. You know, because across all the nation, as you know, as chair of the Council for Great City Schools, you know, everybody is wanting the same things. Right. Um, so we do have them on hold and we're just really waiting on the working group's recommendations on what we should do in terms of which type of technology we'll need to, in our classroom. So, Jill, the, Mr. O'Neill asked a question of how many classrooms do we have in the district and our leadership of our school? It's not 5,000 did not know the answer. Right. Um, yet, supposedly they have walked every building and know every classroom and have known that it, every classroom could be set up in, in a safe way. Um, the Mr. O'Neill then sort of asked how many classrooms have been modeled to make sure that, you know, students can fit. And the answer was six to eight classrooms were modeled about a month ago. Um, and, and quite frankly, Jill, these were modeled, even kindergarten classrooms were modeled with desks, which we know kindergartners don't sit in currently in desks. Right. Um, this, is, this, is a, this is a very big problem. I mean, we, we've been dealing with this crisis since March. And you're telling me that we do not, we've set up six to eight classrooms as models a month ago and haven't done anything since? Um, this is, we're opening school up September 10th. Right. Now, not only that, how can we have any faith in the school district that they know about ventilation? How, how do we know that they know if windows work or don't work? It, clearly, they don't even know how many classrooms are in the district. Right. Um, then the question was stated, do we have the technology needed? The answer was no, but we need we need to order it by Tuesday um, if we're going to get it on time. So we're a month out from school. We have some hopscotch hybrid plan, which, which we can't conceptualize how it's actually going to happen. And we don't have the technology to support it. And we haven't even set up the classrooms to make sure that they work in order to fit the kids in our schools. Um, definitely not increasing trust here. Um, and I would, I would say an overall operational failure of the school system um, at this time of crisis to say that they have no idea how many classrooms they have and that they only modeled six to eight. But, but, and we'll get to that, right? Because this all circles back around to the evaluation of the superintendent at the end of the evening where it just, it, it gets hammered time and time again that there, she does not have a team in place of operators. And, 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 and this is, this is how it's playing out right, right before our eyes. Jill, let me be clear. I, I, I didn't hear people last night say, we don't want to go back to school. No, not at they, all. They would like to go back to school safely. Yeah, right. And the school district has demonstrated time and time again that they do not have the plan or the answers to gain the trust of the community to send their kids back to school. This is not about remote versus in-person. In fact, many, many people said, we want our kids to be in school, but the school system has failed to provide a plan that will give people a sense that they, their kids will be safe and that That's the right. adults will be safe. That's right. So, so we're going to come back around to that, but there was one other conversation um, that happened that uh, we think is, is of note. Um, school committee moved over to the topic of um, uh, a, a, the topic of a task force being created by the superintendent and Michael Lacanto. Um, and it, this task force has about a month to operate in which it'll come up with a recommendation for school committee about 
what the entry requirements are going to be for exam schools for next year. Will it be the new exam or will it be something else? And so there was some discussion about the composition of the task force, which has already been established and um, there are no students on it, um, which is one of the questions that was asked by a school committee member. Um, And then school committee member, Mr. Tran, asked for clarity on the criteria that the committee is using to make recommendations. Let's listen to this conversation between Mr. Tran and uh, Chairman Lacanto. Is there a set criteria that the committee must adhere to in order to evaluate the exam? Uh, can we have that? Um, can can we have that that, that, that syllabus? You know the, the synopsis of the type of uh, criteria that they are going to use in 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 evaluating you know, whatever the, the options out there regarding the test or any other kind of um, uh, options, you know, to move forward. I, I like to see a, a, a set criteria for them to evaluate. And I like to see that if, if it is at all possible, in addition to the issue of equity that, that, that we have, we all have concerns with. Well, Mr. Tran, I think um, it, it may have been lost in the shuffle with uh, the, uh, the volume of emails that we've all received this week uh, on reopening. Um, but uh, I believe the superintendent or Ms. Sullivan or perhaps Mr. Consalvo sent an email a few days ago that included the, the roster of um, the members on the committee as well as that working group's charge. So um, if Ms. Sullivan's on the line, if she could find that uh, email at, at some point during this meeting, and forward that to you with the working uh, the working group's charge. I believe that'll answer your question. I have already reviewed that that oh, you know, okay. all, all the emails that oh, my apologies. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, that's all right. What you know, my 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 uh, my uh, my question is pretty specific. I need to see if at all a list of criteria that they are going to use in order to come up with any kind of evaluation that they are making to us, in addition to the, the equity issue that we are all concerned with. And uh, the, 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 the thing that I received is very general. I need to see, okay, this is the area that they are going to look at, you know, regarding the test. This is, this is the concerns that are raised from the community and how to address them. I, I need to see, you know, the breakdown on the kind of specific criteria, if at all possible. That that that's my my, my concern. Okay. Not not a general, not a general um, uh, benchmark of okay, these are you know, this is what we are going to do. We're going to sit down. We're going to talk about the test. We you know, uh, the, uh, the equity is the issue, and and um, black and brown people. I'm a, I'm brown. Um, have been adversely impacted by the test, and we'll look at it. Uh, there, there may be a consideration of affirmative action. Let's say, I understand that, but I like to see something more concrete than just a general statement. 
Jill, this is another example of a special committee being set up without um, understanding the parameters, I think, of what they're working on. Uh, Mr. Tran is trying to push here and say, give us some clear criteria about what this committee is charged with. This committee essentially is meeting weekly um, until September, I believe, September 22nd, when they're going to make a recommendation to the school committee about um, uh, exam school entrance for the coming year. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, simply Mr. Tran saying, besides giving them an open-ended sort of question of what what should we do? Um, let's be a little bit more organized and give them a little more direction so that when they make the recommendation, um, we can think thoughtfully about it and we'll have more questions. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, Mr. Tran's question was meant was met with, um, uh, you know, really no clear response. It was simply like, Mr. Tran, this is what's going to happen. Um, so I think, you know, look, it, the, the school committee, I think does the right thing in setting up special committees and getting really qualified people to have important conversations. But, you know, I would push them to have a little bit more guidance to these committees about what they're, what they should be doing and how they should be doing it um, while they're spending, while they're spending such important time doing this work. Yeah, this is a really big deal, right? I mean, these are the three exam schools and there's, there's a ton of pressure on kids as they move through their entire BPS experience, or at least on a number of kids who end up, you know, really are vying for a spot at the exam schools. And then you've got the rest of the community who is preparing um, to take an exam to get into the exam school who may be in private schools. This is a big deal. Whatever gets decided here, even if it's for a year, it's, um, it's an, it's a new guide. For, for how things might happen. It's a big deal. And it's also going to be done in private. That These meetings will not be uh, available to public. And so, again, the theme here is trust. So yeah. in order for the public to trust that the process is fair and equitable, um, Mr. Tran was simply looking for the criteria and more information about the charge so that we, when we know that this committee is going behind closed doors to make some uh, recommendations, when they come out, we know that they they have um, done so at the clear charge of the school committee. Really, really fair question. So lastly, and we mentioned this before, but somewhere after midnight, the school committee discussed the superintendent's first year performance evaluation. And school committee member, Dr. Hardin Coleman, who leads this committee, gave an overview of the superintendent's review, where he expresses that the biggest concern that the that school committee has is the lack of organization structure for running the district. Let's play the first quote. We're concerned, and I think of uh, we brought this up earlier, is that the level of productivity without a stronger organizational structure, uh, we worry that won't be sustainable until a stronger internal organizational structure evolves and develops. We're worried that uh, too many initiatives will uh, not be able to move forward at the same level of productivity that's been accomplished this year. And so we really want to encourage a focus on uh, creating a system where authority and responsibility can be delegated by the superintendent so that uh, the, the, uh, Dr. Caselli can focus on managing the system rather than being so deeply engaged in running it. Dr. Coleman later then expresses that the superintendent hasn't included working on building out her organization in her goals for next year. The one thing that's not in her stated goal that was consistent in our conversations was a focus on the organizational structure, an explicit focus on that structure. Now, 
Several committee members note the need for a strong group of leaders to work on different aspects of the organization as being more important now than ever. And in particular, here is Vice Chair Oliver Davila, um, who makes a couple of comments about this. There's pieces to focus on moving forward, which are about, you know, building the internal um, team, getting buy-in from the team and, and uh, collaborating and building that team that you haven't had a lot of time to do, um, to really focus on that, to get those people that are going to help you to, to delegate. Cause I, I know you're like the, a lone wolf and you're like out there and you're doing it and like you're everywhere and you want to, you want to be everywhere. You want to do everything because that that's who you are, you know, and that, that is, that is something great. Um, but at the same time, we do want you to, we do want you to stay here longer. So we need for you to make sure that you do have that solid team that's going to help you like, you know, to make it um, all happen. So, so Jill, what's important here? Uh, one is the school committee said, we want to model effective evalu- performance evaluation um, for the rest of the district, because we think it's really important. And um, I do believe that they have followed the process pretty clearly. Um, actually online, we'll post these, each, each member of the school committee filled out their own performance evaluation, and then we, we can post the composite evaluation of the superintendent. And it is hard to uh, go through a public evaluation process like this. Sure. That, that being said, um, the school committee is modeling that, that the, the importance of the, of the superintendent evaluation um, is that it, it's placed uh, be somewhere between midnight and 1 a.m., of right. a school committee meeting. So therefore the likelihood that people are watching is very minimal. Um, also, uh, let, Dean Coleman asked uh, members a, a really important question. He said, look, members, um, the superintendent has really incorporated much of our feedback in her goals, except she hasn't incorporated this organizational structure piece in her goals. It's not, it's not there. Um, should we call this out and make a, a clear sort of um, expectation of the superintendent that she address this organizational structure and, the, and, and her leadership team. Um, not one school committee member answered that question clearly. Yeah. Um, I would like to answer that question clearly. Uh, the answer should be yes. We should be addressing the superintendent's leadership team and their structure now. Um, yeah. we, we can't wait any longer. We can't wait, um, as Dean Coleman suggested, till after school's open. The reason that we have six to eight models of classrooms set up for thousands of classrooms is because of the organ, the leadership of the school system. Right. Um, the, 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 um, if we haven't figured out how to open windows in classrooms, at least one is because of the leadership of the school system. If we don't have the technology in place for students to learn, it's because of the leadership of the school system. Um, if we're not offering our students water when they go back to school, it's because of the leadership. Uh, if we don't have samples of what school will look like and what learning will look like in a few short weeks, then we have a failure of leadership. So that, yes, please address the lack of leadership team and structure now. So we begin to instill the confidence and trust in our school system that is necessary to reopen. That's the theme of the meeting. And Jill, it's clearly lacking uh, the trust the leadership and the confidence in our school system for parents to, and teachers to go back to school. Yeah, you could feel it. You could certainly hear it in the um, words uh, and expressions of the 96 individuals who um, 
signed up to speak, and you can imagine the hundreds and hundreds of um, folks who are part of the Boston Public School System that they represent, maybe thousands because of some of who, who some of the speakers were. And so I do hope that school committee is listening. Um, and I do think this is a pretty fair representation of what we heard and what happened last night. Thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.